This morning we're listening to Luke's second resurrection story, which is completely unique to his gospel. And the way he's written it, I hope you notice, is absolutely spellbinding. You know, even history itself, the, the telling of events, can be written as dry toast that's just hard to get down, or it can be a rich feast that you love to listen to. And Luke writes history as a rich feast. So for some of the disciples, the news that Jesus' body is not in the tomb only added confusion to their grief. We need only imagine ourselves suddenly losing a loved one. Only then to have the body misplaced days later. And we can get some idea of their tortured emotions in this moment. Now, even while Luke is reporting to us a real encounter, a real historical event, Christians for, have for a long time recognized that on some larger level, Luke is also giving us a parable for the Christian life, for how the risen Christ meets with us as we're moving through our own lives. So this is why there are Christian retreats uh, that have been called for a long time, the walk to Emmaus. Because they recognize that Luke is trying to show us how Jesus reveals himself to us as we're going on our own journeys of life. I think there's good reason for hearing the story in this way. Where does the risen Christ come to us in life? How does he meet with us? The experience of these disciples gives us a pattern, a progression of how the risen Christ comes to us again and again. So if you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 24, verse 13, and I hope you'll follow along. Follow along. So the very first place that the risen Christ visits us is in our grief and confusion. In our grief and confusion. So these two disciples, Cleopas, the other disciple is unnamed, they have given up hope. They're going home. They came to Jerusalem with Jesus and a large crowd full of excitement, brimming with anticipation that they would see Jesus crowned as king. They had no doubt throughout their lives. These are Jews who longed for the redemption of Israel. But throughout their lives, they had suffered disappointment after disappointment. Hope, signs that God might be coming. Maybe now is the time. And then their hopes were dashed. It was not yet the time. But still, they had mustered up the courage to put all their hopes in Jesus. And when they were with him, they had felt that God was near in a way they had never experienced. This is it. <coughs> this is the moment. But instead of being crowned as king in Jerusalem, Jesus was crucified. And their hopes were shattered. Things had only become more strange and more hopeless as his body disappeared. Instead of hanging around to see what more could go wrong in Jerusalem... Uh, maybe the Romans were going to search out the disciples who had followed Jesus. Instead of hanging around to find out what more could go wrong... They pack up and they go home. <clears throat> and they're talking as they make their way home, debriefing everything that's happened. 
And the more they talk, the more they feed off of each other's grief. Listen to the way Luke repeatedly mentions the conversations, the conversation taking place between them. So verse 14, they were talking with each other about all these things. Verse 15, they were talking and discussing together. Then there's Jesus' question to them when he arrives, draws near to them, and they don't recognize him. He asks them literally, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another while you walk? And then we're told, they stood still, looking sad. There's a strong sense in the story that these disciples' grief has become a toxic form of despair. It's not just grief anymore. It's gone to another level. It is full-out despair and hopelessness. And this is, in fact, what prevents them from recognizing Jesus when he shows up to meet with them. Starting in verse 15, Jesus drew near and he went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. You know, this is a, a common experience in the Gospels after Jesus' <coughs> resurrection. He is somehow the same and yet different in his resurrection. Which causes people not to recognize him at first. But these disciples are blinded for an extended period of time. And it's not only this. This is not the only clue that their grief has turned to despair and this is what has blinded them. It's also the fact that Jesus actually rebukes them in their grief. So listen to verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This sounds a little harsh if Jesus is speaking to people who are simply sad. Doesn't it? Is this how we should expect Jesus to speak to us in our own grief? I really don't think so. There are other occasions, such as when Lazarus died, that Jesus weeps with people in their grief. You know, when Christians say that our God is immovable, unchanging, what we certainly do not mean is that God does not have emotions. That he's not moved in the sense of an emotional movement. This is a God who enters our grief. But there is a kind of grief and confusion, and many of us have experienced it, where we begin to turn in on ourselves. Where we seek out conversation partners who will wallow with us in the mud for a while who will let us indulge our frustration and our despair. And with this type of grief, Jesus is not so patient. And the reason is that this is not merely grief. Grief has turned to unbelief. We've chosen in these moments to stop believing in God and instead believe what the darkest sides of our grief tell us, that things are absolutely hopeless, that God and or others have abandoned us and we might as well do as we please. When we get to these places, like Cleopas and this other disciple, we entirely miss Jesus. This is what's happened to them. They've become so turned in on themselves because of their grief, they cannot see that Jesus is actually with them. 
We become blind and we lose the capacity for faith that God can always do a new thing. That in the deepest darkness, God can always shine a light. God is always up to something in our lives. Even though he corrects these disciples, for instance, Jesus still draws near to them. He's still with them. He walks with us on the road, unrecognized. He joins us in our sadness and our despair. Do you know those times when we get self-conscious, concerned that people must be tired of listening to us go on about our problems, our frustrations, our pains? We can be so sensitive to overusing people's ears, even though we need it so much. We need to be able to talk about our pains and our struggles, but we wonder, have I talked too much to that person? Maybe I need to find somebody else to bend their ear some, give that person a break. It's so funny to me that Jesus asked these disciples what they're sad about, even though he's the one it happened to. <laughs> if anybody should have an excuse to say, okay, to say, okay, I've heard enough, it would be Jesus. All of this happened to him. But still, he drags it out of him. What are you sad about? What are these things? You see, Jesus is, there is going to come a point where Jesus is going to say, okay, it's time for you to come out of this. But he still listens. He still asks them to talk about it, to tell him. So the risen Jesus does visit us in our grief and confusion. Even though it can be tough to map where Jesus is in the midst of our grief and confusion, he's there. He's with us. But on their own, grief and confusion are disorienting to us. They, they make no sense on their own. And so there's this other place that Jesus has to visit us to reorient us. So here's the second place that the risen Christ visits us. It's in Scripture. In Scripture. Again, Jesus' correction of these disciples was that they had not believed what the prophets had spoken. This is, this is verses 26 through 27. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, notice carefully what's happened here. The disciples are grieved and confused, completely disoriented to what's happening in their lives and how God it could be present in all of this. They've shared this with Jesus, though they don't know they've shared it with Jesus. What does Jesus do? He becomes their teacher. He teaches them scripture, reorienting them and their expectations of God. This is what Jesus seeks to do with us in our grief and in our confusion. Every Sunday or every day of the week that we're willing to come before scripture, we're a bit disoriented with our lives. We don't know why stuff is happening. Or how God could be present in it. And yet with scripture, God seeks to reorient us over and over again. Scripture is the true story of our world. 
it maps reality for us. So if we're going to have any grasp on our lives, we first have to have a grasp on Scripture. This is why we listen to so much Scripture in our worship services. Sometimes massive chunks at a time. This is why I encourage you incessantly, sometimes on an annoying level, to make Scripture a part of your life from day to day. So that Christ can be our teacher. And so that He can regularly reorient us to the world and how we're called to live within it. When you listen to Scripture, you have to keep in mind that the goal is not to understand everything that's said. You're going to be terribly frustrated if you make that your goal. The goal when you come to Scripture is to listen. To create a posture within yourself of humility and receptivity to the risen Christ who is speaking to you through it. This is why we sit while many of our scriptures are read. So during our epistle and during our Old Testament, we sit. Because the point is that we are submitting ourselves, sitting before the words of Christ. And, but then at other points in the service, we stand So for scripture. So with the psalm and the gospel. And the reason is, these are participatory. We become the chorus of God's people who raise their voices in the cries and the praises of the psalms. And we are the people to whom Christ has come in his incarnation. So we stand and turn our bodies to the center of the room because we are to witness Christ who is among us in this gospel. But the crucial piece of all of this is that we're listening for the voice of Jesus. When scripture is read... We're listening to Him. Not just to whoever happens to read that day, but to Christ. So the, I think there's a practical piece of admonition here for us. <coughs> you know, it is a great thing that we feel comfortable with each other in our service. But this can become a liability if we become overly casual in our worship. You know, we really believe that Christ is speaking when we listen here. So we don't need to find excuses to get up and move out of the service, like to go to the bathroom to the sit for the sixth time or grab the fourth cup of coffee or whatever it may be. You, you might need to visit a doctor if those are issues, if you have to do that. We need to position ourselves quietly before Christ when we worship here so that we can listen for so that we can wait expectantly for that piece of Scripture in which Christ meets us and reorients us in our own suffering, in our own grief and hopelessness. We need to give Christ the gift of our full attention. Now there's a key term in Scripture that often goes misunderstood. And when we misunderstand this, it causes us to misread everything. These disciples had been reading the Bible as the long story of how God would redeem them from suffering. That's what Cleopas and the other disciples were expecting of the Messiah. This is how they had read their whole Bible. 
A suffering Savior? What is that? A, a Savior who expects me to suffer for Him? What is that? But when Christ becomes our teacher, Scripture becomes the story of how God redeems, not from suffering, but through suffering. First through Christ's suffering for us, for our redemption, but then through our own willingness to suffer in service to Christ. This is one of the ways God works in the world when we are willing to suffer in service to Christ. <coughs> Jesus teaches the scriptures with his life of victorious suffering at the very center as the key to interpreting everything. And Christians have to learn in our work, in our families and friendships, in our church, in our relationships with each other, how to take Jesus' life into our own, to be willing to embrace pain and difficulty for Christ. So I'm going to ask you this. I know this is the Easter season, and our tendency, rightly so, is to celebrate. This is the season of resurrection. But you know, Jesus' resurrection means that you're no longer supposed to be fearful of death and evil and their power over you. You're no longer supposed to be fearful of suffering because you're hopeful of resurrection. So let me ask you, is there a way that you're resisting pain and difficulty? Is there a way that you are resisting pain and difficulty. And could it be that God is calling you to embrace a new area of pain and difficulty for Him? In service to Him. In hope of redemption and resurrection with Christ. As a way of taking Christ's life into your own. own. The risen Christ visits us in our grief in our confusion. And then he visits us in scripture where he reorients us to the world, especially to his victorious suffering. <laughs> to taking this into our own lives. And lastly, the risen Christ visits us in the Eucharist. So Christ has taught Cleopas and this other disciple. But they still don't know it's him. In fact, there's a moment, once they arrive at Emmaus, that it appears Jesus could keep going, and the disciples would possibly never know that it was Jesus who had been teaching them. Maybe later, years down the road, something would happen, and they would wonder, wait, was that Christ who was there with us in those moments? Maybe later, but there's a possibility here that they would never know. Did you hear it in verse 28? Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. How are we supposed to take this? Are we supposed to take it that Jesus was pretending to act like he was going to go farther? But he really wasn't. As if he wouldn't have really kept going. 
I think Luke is teaching us something about the Christian life, and he's giving us a very important warning. Jesus can visit us in our lives, in our grief and in our confusion, by teaching us scripture, yet we can still miss him. We can still miss him. If we truly wish to experience the risen Christ, there must be some insistence on our part. Jesus, stay with us. Come near to us. Reveal yourself to us. There must be some persistent and aggressive request that Christ stay with us. Even when we don't know where he is or what he's doing. You see, at the end of the story, these disciples become examples for us. They don't know who Jesus is, but they detect that there is something in him that is unique that they want. And so they say, stay with us. And this is what we need to do with Jesus sometimes where we don't know where he, where he is in our lives. And we should know that Christ is very willing to stay. He doesn't barge into our lives. Just like in the passage in Revelation to the church in Laodicea, Christ is a polite guest. He knocks at the door and he waits for us to let him in. Then once he's in, he begins to reveal himself more deeply. So they insist on Jesus. Won't you stay? And he stays. And then notice in our passage that once Jesus is in their home, he all of a sudden becomes the host. You see, they had invited him in as their guest. But as soon as they sat down to eat, Jesus became the host. He takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it to them. And finally, their eyes are opened. And they behold the Christ. The one they had longed for. The one they had set their hopes on and they thought were completely dashed. They behold him. He is risen. Luke has given us lots of levels to this meal here. So, for instance, this is the eighth meal scene in Luke's gospel. Now, don't, don't close your eyes here. This is huge. This is a big deal. It's the eighth meal scene in Luke's gospel. The Last Supper was the seventh meal scene. And these numbers matter a whole lot in the biblical story. Seven is the number of the days of creation. The days of a week. The Lord's Supper with the disciples was the final meal of the old creation. The old we has ended. But this one, the eighth meal, the first meal after Easter, is the first of God's new creation. It is the first day of the new way, the week of the new creation. And what does this meal do? A better way to ask the question would be, what does this meal undo? So humanity's eyes had been opened when Adam and Eve rebelled. But they weren't opened in a positive sense. Their eyes were opened on their shame, but their eyes were closed to love, to beauty, to purity. Like a child that loses its innocence and it can't be regained. Sometimes when our eyes are open, we're actually blinded to the light. But with this meal, the disciples' despairing eyes are reopened to beauty and to hope and to Christ. With this meal, the curse begins to be undone and sight is actually restored. 
all at once they discerned that Christ had been present with them all along. That something strange had been happening inside of them when he spoke, but they couldn't discern it at the time. It's a good thing they were insistent with this stranger that he stay with them. And it's all the more important that we plead with Christ, that he would draw near to us and that he would reveal himself to us when we can't detect that he's with us. Now that Jesus disappears in this moment, you know, he suddenly disappears as soon as they realize it's him. Why would he leave so quickly after they see that he's with them? The fact that Jesus disappears in this moment means that his followers are going to experience his presence differently from this point forward. It means that through the presence of his spirit in meals just like this one, Jesus is there. Luke is subtly telling us to discern Christ's presence every time we gather around the table to share his body and blood. And you know what it means? It means that when we gather at this table, our eyes can be open just like their eyes. That Jesus' presence is here with us in the way it was with those disciples. He's here. As one poet put it, this is the most tremendous tale of all. That God was a man in Palestine, and today he lives in bread and wine. Christ is here. <clears throat> when you come to receive his body and his blood, he is with you, and he wishes to open your eyes so that you know that he is pure love. That he's with you in your grief and in your pain. And that if you are willing to believe scripture, to believe that through suffering God is redeeming you and redeeming the world. He'll give you everything you need to move through that suffering with joy and with hope, with the life of the resurrection. You see, suffering is not so strange to Easter as it may seem. In fact, suffering is an inherent part of Easter. A part of this season. Because the only way through to the resurrection is through that suffering, through that pain in your life. So the risen Christ is alive with us. He visits us in our grief and in our confusion. He visits us in Holy Scripture and He speaks to us so that our hearts begin to burn with life. Our hopes begin to be reborn. And then he visits us in Eucharist, where he opens our eyes to behold him in his risen glory, his beauty, and his love. And so, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia.